Hello and welcome to the July edition of On The Horizon, our monthly podcast dedicated to helping you to navigate through the tricky world of golf course turf maintenance by helping you to look and think a little further forward. I'm Henry Beshley from ICL. And I'm Glenn Kirby from Syngenta. This month, Henry, we're going to be asking the big questions like, will July see plenty of blue sky? How much sun cream should we apply? And will Henry's skin fry? You look like a man who commits to a good level of UV protection, Henry. Certainly do, Glenn. Minimum factor 50. Good man. Okay. As always, Glenn, let's start with the weather. And as we discussed last time, June was set to be a drying month, but not necessarily a dry month. Uh, But with temperatures rising to a point where heat stress could and probably would enter into the game. Uh, The longest day was at the end of the month, and so we were also mindful that light stress might also be beginning to mount up. So we were conscious that June was potentially introducing that challenge of uh, accumulating and combining stresses, and we were fearful that things would only intensify in July. So, Glenn, how does summer tend to shape up from here? What's in the next instalment of that climatic data? Okay, Henry, once again, let's start with moisture. Now, if you remember last month, we spoke about moisture loss rather than how much rain will we get or how much evapotranspiration will we get. We distilled it right down to a net balance. On average, will we come out of the month drier than when we went into it? And and on the, the West Coast last month, I've got to say I was a little surprised that on average they'd probably only come out of the month between 10 and 20 millimetres drier than when they went in. Uh, So it tended to be drying, but not necessarily dry. Yes, that's on average, Henry. But we had a potential in those drier years on the West Coast to lose 80 millimetres in moisture. Mm. And in the driest areas of the country, over in the kind of southeast corner, we could potentially lose 125 millimetres of moisture in those dry years. Mm. Okay, so so where are you looking at this month, Glenn? Well, I plan to go east coast this month, Henry, Mm. and um, I've started with Sandwich down in the southeast again. And then I've gone up to Cromer in Norfolk, which is about as far east as we can go in the country. And for those two places, Sandwich is averaging in the month of July about 86 millimetres of moisture loss once you take the rainfall away from the evapotranspiration. Mm. And Mm. if we go over to Cromer, a little bit further north, but really far east, that's averaging about 65 millimetres of moisture lost in the month of July. Uh, Well, that is good news, uh, Glenn, because I will be camping near Cromer at the start of July. But those those moisture deficit figures, they are really sneaking up uh, quite significantly now, aren't they? And so, you know, I would think that moisture stress would be a primary concern for all of those East Coast courses. Yeah, it sure is sneaking up, Henry. 80 millimetres net loss is serious stuff. Now, I try to concentrate on the East month 
uh, on the East Coast this month, but curiosity got the better of me and I couldn't help myself. So I did go back to Newquay over in Cornwall on the West Coast to see how that compared. Mm. And in Newquay, they were averaging about 45 millimetres of moisture loss. So less than both Chroma and Sandwich. And I was a bit confused about this, so I had a little look around. And it's deceptive because Newquay isn't only further west than both of those, obviously, but it's further south too. It's about 40 miles further south of Sandwich and 150 miles south of Chroma. Now, that does surprise me. But if that's an average, what does a dry year look like then, Glenn? Okay, Sandwich and Chroma over on that east coast, they can both reach 125 millimetres moisture lost in their dry years. And if we go over to Newquay, their worst case scenario to date is 97 millimetres moisture lost. Okay, so things are definitely ramping up in July and there is a potential now for two or maybe even three or four successive months of significant moisture loss on the bounce, which of course means accumulating stress and this is at the time when the other stresses like temperature and light intensity in particular are also entering the game and so the odds are that July for the south and east of England is going to be a dry month more often than not but of course Glenn the golfing universe is centered further north this July so what can we expect up here and beyond Okay, so I've had a little look at Aberdeen up on the east coast of Scotland. That's averaging around 18 millimetres of moisture loss, 1.8, Henry. Uh, Royal County Down over on the west coast of Ireland, that's averaging about 35 millimetres of moisture loss. And again, I couldn't help myself for looking for a comparable west coast location. Uh, so for comparability, I went over to Southport near Liverpool and they're averaging around 30 millimetres of moisture lost. OK, so further north, we're probably going to be experiencing less extreme conditions and and maybe getting a few more breaks um, when it comes to drought stress? Yeah, it is still there though, Henry. All three locations have reached 80 millimetres in some years, in those dry years. But remember, a worst case scenario for those areas is a normal year for the southern half of England, and particularly over on that east coast. Mm, now, that is something I, I don't think I appreciated quite as much as I should have. So drought stress management is clearly a big, big issue in the south and east. And although we do experience problems further north and west, they tend to be less intense and shorter lived. OK, so, you know, on the other side of that coin, what are the chances of a wet July? You know, when the jet stream gets stuck over Scotland or whatever it is and summer becomes more of a drab affair. Glenn, what are the agronomic odds of a drab one. I've had a little look around at this one, Henry, and probably gone in deeper than I should have because I found it a little too interesting. And if we look at July, the chances of coming out wetter than you went in are pretty weak. I've gone back 38 years here, Henry, just because I could and I didn't believe what I was seeing. So if we go through those locations again, west coast of Ireland, that's about 50-50. Um, about half of the years historically they've seen more rain than evapotranspiration mm. and the other half obviously more eat even rain um, if we go to Southport 25 times in the last 38 years they've seen more eat even rain um, so they dry out 25 times in the last 38 
Aberdeen, 26 times out of the last 38, they have seen more evapotranspiration than rain. Newquay, and this is where we start to see the difference, 33 times out of the last 38, they've had more evapotranspiration than rain. So uh. most of the time, they're going to have a dry year. Mm. And Sandwich, and this was the run that really shocked me, not once in the last 38 years have they seen more rainfall than evapotranspiration. Ooh. So it really is a location-based thing. The further south you go, the tougher it is, and the more likely you are to experience some drought, the less chance we've got of seeing one of those drab damp Julys that yeah. maybe you get up north sometimes. Yeah, that's right. That is interesting. It's sort of it, that, that that was a kind of clear uh, sort of example of the situation, wasn't it? Okay, so look, moving on, let's have a look at the temperatures next. Now, before we start looking at those glamorous highs, Glenn, uh, I'm just interested to know, now that we're at the peak of our summer, what the lows look like. Is there anything in the figures uh, that might uh, limit growth, let's say? Okay, well, the north to south divide is again clear in this one, Henry. Newquay is consistently staying the mildest overnight. At 30, uh, sorry, 40 miles further south means that we rarely drop below 10 degrees in the month of July in Newquay. The average coldest temperature at any point, so this is the coldest temperature they've reached, is 9.8. So they're over 10 degrees for the whole month. Mm. And I do start to wonder if that is a big driver for the dollar spot that we see down in that area of the country. Because we don't see dollar spot anywhere near as intense over on the East Coast, even though they reach higher temperatures. Mm. Now, if we look at Sandwich, though, they are averaging 9 degrees as the lowest temperature they see. Um, which is a small difference, one degree between the two, but that's enough to surprise me. I wasn't expecting that one. Uh, if we move up to Chroma, they're averaging 8.5 as the lowest temperature they see. Southport, 8.4. Over to Royal County down on the uh, west coast of Ireland, 5.75 degrees. And then up to Aberdeen, 5.35. So some big differences there on those overnight temperatures, those coldest points we reach. Um, and an indicator pointing towards some of the disease problems we're starting to get in different areas of the country. So no chance of a frost in July then, Glenn? I could find no recorded evidence of a frost in July, Henry. OK, well, that's good. Right, so what about those high temperatures then? Uh, July is the month when we think that they're generally at their peak. But, you know, is that is that the case? Um, how are those temperatures actually looking? Is it likely to be... Scotchio. <laughs> okay, Henry. If we look back at Dr. Beard and Dr. De Paolo's work in 1992, they were saying that canopy temperatures for cool season grasses are at their optimum between about 16 and 24 degrees. Um, so you would think that most of the time we're pretty much in the optimum and rarely fall out of the optimum. But there is an interesting part of that that often gets missed, and that's that the figures quoted are canopy temperatures not air temperatures. And most people don't have a handle on what that really means for them. Mm. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that interaction later on. But for now, let's just have a look at how often we go over a temperature of 22, because that is the point I suspect those canopy temperatures really start ramping up and maybe move outside of the optimum into stress levels. So we're focusing on 22 degrees, Henry. Yeah, interesting, Glenn. So are you covering the same locations again? 
Yes, I am. And this time we're going to look at how many days a month do we go over 22 degrees on average. OK. So let's start at the top of the list. Uh, Sandwich down in Kent tops our list with six days on average in the month of July above 22 degrees. If we go up to Cromervet next on the east coast, a bit further north, uh, that's averaging at five days above 22 degrees in the month of July. Okay, so the east coast leading the way on this one. Okay, then we move over to Newquay and Southport. They're both an averaging at two days in July. And then Aberdeen and Royal County Down rarely get to 22 degrees. Wow, so another clear-cut indication that those southern and eastern areas are seeing significantly higher levels of stress, this time temperature. And the further north and west we go, those stressful conditions tend to become comparatively insignificant on average. But there's more, Henry. If you plot out all those figures on a graph, there is a clear-cut trend for the number of those warmer days to be increasing. And that trend reflects right around the country. doesn't matter where you are, the number of those warm days is becoming a more and more common occurrence. So you think that there may be a trend of uh, increasing temperatures and, and those stresses looming over that horizon that might affect us more significantly further north and west in the future? I do. I really do. So what about those really high Scorchio temperatures then, Glenn? How extreme do they get in July at the moment? Well, not as crazy as you'd think. Um, If we go to Sandwich, our extreme location, they had 10 days over 26 degrees in 2018. But normally they're around three days above that 26 figure. But remember, these are coastal locations. And if you, if you track in land uh, to London, M25 area, then you see those summer month temperatures tracking about three degrees higher. So if you go and look somewhere like Newquay, which looked like it was averaging really low, you haven't got to move far inland for all of a sudden those numbers to be tracking up to kind of 24 degrees. Okay, so to summarise your temperature data, the heat stresses, even though it's the hottest time of the year, are maybe not quite as extreme or damaging as we as we might think for July on their own. But they uh, will certainly be a contributory factor if we see stress as a combination and accumulation issue. That's right. But we are talking air temperatures here and the relationship between air temperatures and canopy temperatures aren't always as clear as we think, Henry. Mm. Uh, Okay, And we also think that we're seeing these trends move in an upward direction as well. Yeah, absolutely. And indeed, for many parts of the country, that is absolutely fine. It's not going to move us into significant stress anytime soon. In fact, it may just move us into better growing conditions. But for other areas, it's moving us deeper into summer disease conditions that we haven't been traditionally a problem for us, Mm. namely dollar spot. Um, For some southern stadium venues, we've started to see some grey leaf spot about in the last few years. Mm. And I do start to wonder how many years it's going to be before we stumble into some Pythium territory. Yeah, that might not be too far away over the horizon, uh, mightn't it? Yeah, July is usually when we reach our peak. So whilst it can be hot in the UK, we only have to nurse our turf through a few hot days. And that is fairly easily negotiated if we put some good practices in place. Yes. 
Uh, July is a month where the stresses can continue to accumulate and combine. And so our management focus needs to be able to cope with all these different pressures hitting us from all sides. So I suppose we should all prepare for stress in July, hot, dry and bright. And you and your southern cohort, Glenn, should already have, you know, your fully loaded stress mitigation plans already in place while we up north can probably be a little more circumspect and just keep a close eye on that horizon for any developing extremes and prepare accordingly because you know some seriously extreme weather can you know come quickly over that horizon and we might just need a good quick response to prevent it from causing problems. That's right. We cannot take our eye off the ball this month, Henry. Okay, so July is a month of accumulating and compounding stresses. Mm. High light levels, high temperature levels, high moisture loss. But what does the customer expect in the month of July? Well, this is the time of delivery, isn't it, Glenn? Expectations are at their maximum across the board, not only in terms of uh, playing qualities, but also those standards of presentation. This is the very height of the season, isn't it? And with with wall-to-wall golf, morning, noon and night. And we've got the Open, haven't we? The 150th Open coming up at St Andrews in the middle of July, which I will be attending, uh, Glenn, as a spectator and submerging myself in the first couple of days of competition. Um, are you going up? No, not this year, I'm afraid. I'm over at the Turf Research Conference in Copenhagen that week. Ooh. Shame, though. I think it's going to be great. Hopefully boiling down to one of those classics when the home stretch has the final say on who will be the champion golfer of the year. I can't wait. Yeah, I'll be watching with interest, though. Yes, and and of course, it will undoubtedly increase the level of general player expectation and aspiration to new heights of false hope and delusion, uh, which I particularly enjoy as I assume the intensity of Big Jack as I approach the ball. Um, But this is what it's all about, isn't it? Playing the game. And, and of course, the greenkeeping teams across the land will all be buzzing. Hopefully, there'll be full staffing levels and we'll have good growing conditions and we can cope with the, the extremes uh, without too much bother. Yeah, hopefully it's a time when we'll all be reaping the rewards that are due from all the hard work. What did July mean to you, Glenn, as a course manager? It was generally a pretty good month. I think the biggest challenge for us in July was some drought stress. Uh, But actually, that just meant we had an opportunity to present a really strong, fast running golf course. And if we did begin to enter that territory, it meant that, you know, after six weeks of crazy amounts of grass growth down here in the south, we could start to back off on those mowing hours. And And I think most golfers quite enjoyed the extra distance they were getting from the golf ball rolling out on the fairways, you know, imagining they were at St Andrews themselves. And that was always assisted, that extra length, by that sun warming up their bones and making the 70 year old seniors just feel a little looser than they do for the other nine months of the year. And not just the 70-year-olds, Glenn. Uh, I played with Martin the other week, first time in a long while, and 
the bones were certainly creaking. But it never leaves you, does it, Glenn? You know, that old <laughs> magic, it never leaves you. And there you go, that's the delusion right there, Glenn, front of house. But it was just great to get out there and, and, and appreciate things and enjoy ourselves. Yeah, I used to find that July we had a pretty decent routine down as well in the greenkeeping team mm. and we could really dial in that work pattern. Um, we knew what we were doing each day of the week. Everyone knew their tasks. We just got on with it. And I actually found it was one of the least stressful periods of the year. Even though there was generally a lot of expectation from the golfers and the customers, I always felt we could deliver it in July. Um, hand watering was probably our biggest labour pool going on. Uh, but if there was hand watering going on in July, it meant the mowing was probably not so important due to drought reduced grass growth. Mm, yeah, and if I think back to my agronomy days, the July visits in the vast majority of cases were a positive experience with everyone being on their game and the course presentation being set at its beautiful best. The focus of those visits would probably be on uh, measuring the playing quality of the greens and checking that we're in the right area. That's right. Everybody's very happy to get a stint meter and a clay camera out in the month of July. <laughs> That's right, yeah. And, uh, and you know, we might be testing out some tweaks with the surface preparation, you know, the impact of double cutting and uh, brushing before rolling or mowing or whatever it is. Generally, I think those visits were all about fine-tuning but sitting back, really, and, and sort of reaping the benefits of, of, of having taken a proactive approach rather than having to make too many changes. Of course, we would be planning ahead for the, for the late summer and autumn. You know, there's plenty coming up on that particular horizon. But we would also make sure to take the time to stop and appreciate the course at its very best and, of course, all the hard work that had got it there. Look, July is a great time for routine, isn't it? Good for presenting great surfaces and just really knowing where you are. But it doesn't last long, though. A lot of my team had kids. They were always saving holidays for the August school holidays. Mm. And then that presented me a different set of challenges. So July was nice. Everything ticked over, knew what we were doing. But the onset of August and the seeming lack of staff and the training of those summer casuals was a new challenge. Mm. And the club competition season will be in full swing, won't it? And so there will always be that critical eye on the course and maybe those ultra-competitive golfers always demanding more, which, you know, does place that added pressure on proceeding. Indeed, competitive golf does bring additional pressures, doesn't it? Um, look, fingers crossed, Henry, we'll get everything falling our favour in the month of July and we can deliver what the customer wants and desires. Mm. But if those stresses do mount up, there are a few things we can do to stack the odds in our favour. Yes, there are. So, Henry, we've talked about the upcoming extremes of weather and the heightened levels of expectations. Yes. But what are the agronomic risks that we could face in July? Yes. Uh, as we already mentioned, uh, we still need to keep our wits about us in July, don't we? Because uh, the environmental extremes can be continuing to build and also combining and the maintenance and traffic pressures will also be at their maximum. If growing conditions are good, then we should be able to navigate the situation without too much bother. But if things go out of balance, 
then the pressures can quickly take their toll, can't they? Anyone who's had their uh, irrigation system go down on them, on them at this time, you know, during a heat wave, uh, knows that it only takes a few days for the annual meadowgrass to really give up the ghost. Yeah, it's easy to forget just how close to the edge we are at this time of year. Mm. And it only takes a twist of fate to cause real problems. It's a yeah. real reminder to keep pushing, isn't it, on those system upgrades and making sure everything is kept in good working order. Mm. Because, you know, everything could be on the line at this time of year. Yes. So let's not be under any illusions at this time. Uh, stress mitigation and management should form the foundation of our plans and we should take care not to push too hard, especially if conditions start to turn against us. Yes, by the end of the month, we might have been running our summer routines now for eight to ten weeks already, and we need to be careful to compensate if we need to. We are now fully in the anfracnose zone, aren't we? Yeah, we are. You know, we've been in that extended period of maintenance pressure since May, haven't we? And, and that, coupled with the, with the other mounting stresses that we've talked about, this can really start to take its toll on annual meadowgrass, especially if we've been keeping the surfaces lean since spring. Uh, yeah, uh, so unapologetically, I'm afraid we're going to continue with our series on anfracnose in the second half. And we will recap on our prevention strategies. Uh, and you are going to look at some of those additional stresses, uh, like that canopy temperature issue, in a little more detail, um, because that might cause us some serious problems uh, during July, especially down south. And we mentioned dollar spot already when we were talking about those temperatures, didn't we? Uh, yeah, we began our discussions on dollar spot last month, actually, didn't we? And we're going to keep going a little later on, because that might also become a big issue, uh, especially in those southern and southwestern areas. Yeah, indeed. It's an important disease, especially on the continent as well. Ooh, so yeah. us at Syngenta, we've been putting a lot of work in to understand best methods of control on this one. Great, and I look forward to hearing that. And, of course, depending on the weather conditions, any other number of diseases can pop up in the month of July. Yeah, we called them boutique diseases last year, didn't we, Glenn? <laughs> yeah, we did. I quite like that. Or niche diseases. That might be more apt. Uh, these are the ones that can occur as a result of those really localised conditions you might get on your site. Yeah, and they can bite you, can't they? You know, take or patch might be a good example. You know, it's niche in the sense that it needs particular conditions to be in play for it to strike. High soil or irrigation water pH coupled with susceptible grass types such as bent grass, that would certainly increase the risk of attack. And when it does strike, it can hit hard. And so we might see some take or patch disease at this time, especially somewhere like Ireland, where higher pH top dressings and root zones or irrigation water are commonly used. Yeah, and it can be extremely damaging and highly problematic. So, yeah, I think some take or patch might be on the horizon for one or two areas this month. So what about other diseases, things like brown patch, whitea patch, yellow tuft, any leaf spot? Do you think we'll see any of those things? kind of things cropping up in July? Yes, yes I do. Uh, well, you've already seen some Waitia patch down south, haven't you? Yeah, that was the first week of June this year, Henry. Yeah, um, yellow tuft crops up every now and again, doesn't it? That's more likely to occur in wet conditions, but although it's ugly, it doesn't tend to be too damaging. I've seen that once or twice floating around during this kind of 
period of the year. And from my experience, it's all about where you're just holding more moisture in the root zone. Um, I had one green where the irrigation system just wasn't set up great, and I had one head that would regularly stick on, and it would it would run for longer than it needed to, and all that moisture would run down to the front left of that green. And every year I'd get hit with yellow tuft. And I think that's very typical of these niche diseases. Um, just something a bit funny going on somewhere, somewhere holding some more moisture or some irrigation faults. And then I'd go on to really worry about it. I'd spend a lot of time researching, trying to understand what I could apply, what cultural operations I should do. And the disease never really came to anything, never really impacted the surface. It was just more of a worry for me than something that really challenged us and impacted the putting surface you know by the time i'd drawn a conclusion it had gone i'd forgotten about it and i probably should have just sorted that irrigation head out yeah yeah they can be anxiety provoking can't they um whitea patch see it actually seems to be quite common down south now i've never seen it up north so i think it's those higher temperatures that you experience down there driving that yeah that weather data has put that in clear focus now hasn't it And, and you know this seems to fall into a similar group to me it feels like the one that completes the collector card of which diseases that year you get Mm. i've rarely seen it evolve into anything that has disrupted a putting surface significantly and often it's just misdiagnosed superficial fairy rings yeah yeah lee you mentioned lee spot didn't you you know that would probably be quite common on green collars and surrounds uh, to sort of result in a, maybe a thinning of the sward or that sort of, you know, yellowing of the leaf. Again, it probably wouldn't be a massive issue. Again, would be driven by quirky conditions, you know, sort of moisture and temperature, but maybe with some, some nutrient stress going on. Nothing to lose sleep about um, in general, and maybe a touch of fertiliser would help. And you've also seen some some brown patch, haven't you, which... which Again, it might be one of those diseases that starts to increase in prominence if those sort of weather trends uh, continue upwards. Yeah, it can. And that one can be serious. And I've seen a bit of that about uh, in the last couple of weeks, actually. Mm. But the occurrence of all these niche diseases generally is dependent on sort of unusual weather conditions or, or site conditions. But, you know, that's not we, we shouldn't be dismissive of them really you know you do need to be still be alert of anything unusual just just in case it does become you know damaging yeah that's right because they might be uncommon but that doesn't mean they can't cause problems um, yeah. with these diseases we need to understand what the worst case scenario is with something like yellow tough the worst case scenario is some minor visual impacts on your putting surface with something like take all patch though that can be very disruptive mm. to the putting surface so from an investment of your time and anxiety point of view Really try and understand what the worst case scenario is and then prioritise your time to understand the best control strategies. You know, Mm. some of these things are a pretty good agronomic indicator of what's going on. Are you holding too much moisture? Is there something wrong with your irrigation system? Is it incorrectly set up? Have you got trees that are stopping airflow? Mm. It's usually pointing towards something along those lines. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. As an agronomist, you kind of read these situations. And although it might not be the end of the world, it certainly might be pointing towards an important agronomic issue that needs resolving. Mm. No doubt you will be seeing, Glenn, a different array of diseases in your international role. And 
a whole new set of challenges. Yeah, I'm seeing all sorts these days, Henry, and I've got a feeling that the continent has it a whole lot worse than we do over in the UK. Yeah, yeah, I look forward to hearing those tales, actually. Whether we can, we, I'm, I'm sure we can learn from, from your experiences Absolutely. out there, yeah. You know, and I suppose it all points to sort of control strategies being really important, isn't it? Uh, you know, especially when the jeopardy is so much higher and a big part of, you know, all control methods is the application of your sort of technologies. Um, and sometimes we forget how important that is, you know, the actual application of these materials. And so so we're just going to start focusing on that a little bit more, aren't we, as we move forward? Yeah, we've got loads to talk about this month, Henry. Yes, we do. And so in that case, shall we take a break to gather our breath? That is a cracking idea. I'll go put the kettle on, Henry. Ready yourself for a busy part two. Uh, welcome back to part two of July's On the Horizon. And it turns out that July can be a tricking time, Henry. That's right, Glenn. And after doing this for more than a year, it is crystal clear to me that there is never an easy time for greenkeeping in the UK and Ireland. Yes, it's a tough game at times. And although we might be into our summer routines now, July can really pose some serious challenges. That's right. And so we are going to focus on anthracnose and dollar spot again, as those kind of stresses increase, and thinking about our integrated management strategies, including fungicides, um, to prevent them from causing us too many problems. Yes, and I'd like to reinforce the importance of application later in this podcast, because it can mean the difference between success and failure. So a big difference then. Indeed. But before we proceed, Henry, we should discuss your tea problem. Oh. How have you been this month? Uh, spiralling out of control, I'm afraid, Glenn. Oh, Henry. Is there anything I can do to help? Have you got a strainer, Glenn? I do, Henry, but I'm not giving it to you. Not until you accept you have a problem. I've been slurping, Glenn. Look, I know you have, Henry. I'm in too deep. Oh. I know. I've been drinking Lapsang Souchong. Oh, Christ. How was it? Smoky, Glenn. And not very nice. Well, that's some progress, I suppose. How about you, Glenn? Coffee, white, in a mug. Nice? Yeah, it was all right, I suppose. Good for you, Glenn. Good for you. Anyway, um, where should we start, Henry? Right then, um, shall we start part two by picking back up on anthracnose? Good idea. Because we started banging the drum on this really early this year, didn't we? Uh, to try and get uh, ahead of the game with our on-the-horizon prevention strategies. We did, and because there's been lots of good research going on around this, we know there is plenty of effective tactics that we can employ. You know, things we can do to reduce the risk of a serious outbreak developing. And no doubt we will get to those a little later on. But the point about July is that we are now fully in that time period 
when attacks are likely to develop, especially if we haven't been able to build in those preventative tactics um, that we've been banging on about all these months. But it's not too late, Glenn, is it? And, and we can still adopt some preventative strategies, even now, to try and stop the wheels coming off later on. Yes, and maybe this is more of the reality of the situation, that mm. the pressures to produce those first surfaces that people are expecting start to override things. And the best we can do is slot in some buffers at this time. Yes, and so, with my agronomist hat on... Trilby, Henry? Ten gallon, Glenn. I just wanted to discuss the idea that we should probably have the same kind of attitude towards anthracnose in the summer that we do with microdochium patch in the autumn and winter because our autumn and winter programmes tend to be fully integrated. Mm, what do you mean by that? Well, in the, whilst we're still trying to maintain uh, playing qualities at that time, we also prioritise and build in our integrated disease control strategies as well and our programs at that time are you know fully rounded aren't they but in the summer i'm not sure that our programs are as fully integrated you know the agronomic emphasis seems to be mainly focused on you know maintaining surface playing qualities and speed in particular and sometimes it feels that you know it's at the expense of plant health and you know, we're actually, you know, increasing the risk of disease developing with our practices. So I think that there is a very different attitude going on at this time, um, you know, when we're constantly pushing up to and over the edge sometimes. Yeah, but it is different at this time of year, though, Henry, because performance of the greens is so important. It's the key part of our job. It's an essential issue. Yeah. And the consequence could be the development of a bit of anthracnose, but... We can have the playing quality, surely, and also manage the disease, can't we? Yeah, I get that, but it's still a massive problem, isn't it? And, and you know, I just wonder that if we thought of summer as a time of integrated turf management like we do in the autumn, you know, where the playing quality is still a priority, but our practices, our practices are set within more rounded integrated strategies that we might gravitate towards a better and less risky way. So do you think that general greenkeeping mindset is slightly wrong when it comes to some of them? Not always, Glenn, but sometimes definitely. Because we both know that there's loads of different ways to prepare high quality surfaces and they aren't all super risky. But it's just that that seems to be the norm these days. But we do have to accept there's always going to be an element of risk isn't there yeah i know i know and so you know good point glenn let's approach this section from that perspective this month glenn let's think about it in terms of risk now that's a good idea i do enjoy a new angle yes uh, but before we, we do that, should we just have a quick recap about the disease uh, if it's going to start raising its ugly head? Why not? OK, so we've, we've talked a lot about anthracnose in the previous episodes, but sometimes we forget to go back to basics. So, Glenn, can you shed uh, a little light on what governs the development of the disease and what are the symptoms of attack? Well, yellowing of the leaves generally, uh, but another important diagnostic feature for anthracnose is the asexual fruiting bodies known as acuvali and their black hair like setae that can be found on the necrotic tissues and we see them when temperature increases around this time. 
summerfolia blight symptoms can appear more grey or orange or kind of bronze spots around 1.3 to kind of that small size in diameter. And as the disease progresses, small patches can start to coalesce into groups and it become it can really start to become a seriously damaging disease. Now, basal rot is the other form of the disease, and that can occur at this time if there is enough moisture about. And that's fairly easily identified. It's very banana yellow in its coloration of the leaves, and the plant will easily lift away from the sward as the base is severed by that fungal activity. Okay, so there are two forms of the disease, but they are both caused by the same pathogen. Yeah, that's right. It can cause two types of infections, basal rot in cooler, wet periods, and I've seen some of that already in the spring. And the foliar blight is the more severe during the summer months when environmental factors, high temperatures, they all add up to result in a stressed turf. Yes, and we've talked about the research and how things like nitrogen inputs, mowing heights, top dressing, uh, irrigation, the use of plant growth regulators, verticasting, all the, you know, all the staples, they can all influence uh, the speed and development of attack and in a positive way. And so we need to use these tools to try to strike a balance with our programs that continues to maintain the required playing qualities, but also reduces the propensity for a serious outbreak. Yeah, there's plenty we can think about when adjusting and preparing the surfaces and they all all those changes and tweaks they all really help and we spoke last month about the trials work we'd done and in particular the benefits of high cure on a fortnightly application throughout the growing season now i suggest if we're now into july then we need to really remain focused on that um, if we're in a high risk site and we've seen historic challenges that program can help move the plant into a better place and that better place will help it withstand the pressures of anthracnose. Yeah, and, and with the best will in the world, uh, we know at times, because there is a significant environmental component to this disease, that we might need some additional help from fungicide applications to help us through. And that shouldn't be seen as a failure, uh, should it? It should be sort of um, used as an essential component of that fully integrated management plan. That's right. We shouldn't be in denial about the fact that anthracnose can occur regardless of the fact we've employed all of those cultural operations that are within our reach. Yes, and because real life is never perfect, especially if the club's expectations don't accept the surfaces that a slightly more integrated programme uh, might deliver, then fungicide will be required or else uh, there'll be a decline in the, in the surface playing qualities as a result. So, Glenn, how do we navigate July with regard to anthracnose in the real world of greenkeeping? Well, the first is to get ahead of the game, Henry. We know preventative is much better than curative. And so if you have factored in the use of a fungicide, don't hold off too long because anthracnose can strike hard. And when it does, it can do a lot of damage in the blink of an eye. OK, so when should we apply? OK, so let's go back to where we started on this. I think we should be really identifying our level of risk when we're putting together our summer ITM programmes. Yes, risk. OK, so what are we thinking about? Well, you can probably identify your own level of risk by just answering a few questions. Number one, are you predominantly power annua? Number two, are your cutting heights below three millimetres? And I'm not talking, well, I am talking bench settings here because three millimetres on the bench generally, from what I've seen, can be as low as one millimetres in real 
um, actual cutting height. Uh, number three, do you or does your irrigation system and watering strategy mean there are times where you see drought stress in the month of July? Number four, are you applying less than two kilograms of nitrogen per week or eight kilograms of nitrogen per hectare per month? And number five, do you mow seven days a week? And number six, have you backed off on your top dressing program recently? Now, if you answered yes to probably four out of those six questions, you're probably in the moderate risk category. If you answered yes to all six of them, then you are probably in high risk areas. All right, well, let, look, let's go through those again so we can tick them off in our own minds. So fingers at the ready, everyone. Uh, what was that first question? Are you predominantly poor annual? Well, that would be like 95, maybe even higher percent of the courses in the UK. Maybe a little less in Ireland, but certainly the majority. Oh, by the way, Glenn, I should say, just as a quick aside, hmm. that I have an article... I've written an article for the next Greenkeeper International on the subject of sward species composition. If you want to talk about it next month. Have we got you back on disturbance theory, Henry? Well, yeah, a little bit, actually. DT light, maybe. Awesome. I knew we'd get you there. Yeah, anyway, but that's, a yeah, back to the question. Um, you know, annual meadowgrass dominance, that's a definite, isn't it? So, so yeah, that's one. Okay. So you've got one finger up. Yeah, well, Number two. It's, my, it's my thumb. Oh, OK. Nice. Interesting detail that I needed there, Henry. Thank you. Mm. Um, number two, are your cutting heights below three millimetres? Uh, yeah, well, yeah. You know, so what do you reckon, Glenn? 50%, 80%? You know, I would say the, ma the majority are, aren't they? Uh, I think it's fairly standard these days, particularly those guys who are focused, um, those greenkeepers, those guys and girls who are focused on giving their customers what their customers are asking for. Okay, yeah, so definitely then. So so that's a two. That's two out of two. So a finger and a thumb. Finger and a thumb now. Okay. Uh, number three, does your irrigation system and watering strategy mean that you see some drought stress at times in July? Well, this feels like another yes. Uh, you know, generally we try to keep things you know, on that dry side, um, maybe too much at times, actually. But definitely, if, if you've got those sort of ineffective irrigation systems as well. Yeah, or maybe a heat wave or a stuck head or a rock in the nozzle or the foot of valve, a burst, poor coverage. Do you want me to go on? Please don't, Glenn. I get the picture. So that's three out of three then. OK, what's next? OK, are you applying less than two kilograms of N per hectare per week or eight kilograms of N per hectare per month? Yeah, I mean, it is a little bit borderline, that, isn't it? But I'd sort of say it is quite common as well. You know, that two kilograms of, of nitrogen per hectare per week is generally the level that our team at ICL recommend. But I should say we also usually schedule a slight boost at this time if needed you know, just to sort of ease the pressure a little bit because, you know, that is quite lean, we, we must say. Mm, and I'm interested in this, Henry, and, and whilst the ICL team are recommending it, what percentage of the industry do you think are taking up that advice? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I mean, it's a good point. Um, I don't know what everyone's doing, really, but I think we do keep things um, lean in general, don't we? Yes, but the other thing to think about, of course, is the background level 
for that nutrition will depend very much on the greens type, won't it? Now, if I go back to my experience and my sand-based greens on my golf course, I should have been running those at a significantly higher background level than the soil-based greens I had. Those sand-based greens always used to fall through the floor at this time. And an overall boost or a localised one might be really helpful in the month of July to make that difference. Yeah, so that's probably another finger, I think, Glenn. So that's four out of four so far. Mm, Okay, so that's three fingers and one thumb. Yeah. Okay, do you mow seven days a week? And again, I would think that this would be quite common. So another yes for many. And What did you do when you were managing a course? Uh, Well, I was really reliant on mowers at this time of year. Um, The rollers would go out, but they would usually go out on top of a mower to increase green speed. Rarely did I use them to replace a cut and never did I. I can't think of any situation where I ever skipped an operation during the summer months or in July. But if I had my time again, Henry, I'd think differently. Well, likewise, Glenn. Uh, So that's five out of five. Um, What was the last one? Um, Have you backed off on your top dressing programme? Well, yeah, the the mechanic usually has their say at this time, don't they, with those blades constantly uh, being affected? Yeah, it's a tough one, isn't it? And they've got to fit that into their schedules in around golf and all those kind of things. So that one's easily compromised. Yeah, so I think that most people will be saying six out of six. And so we're naturally running, as you said, a very high level of risk when it comes to the potential development of anthracnose. It is, and I think people kid themselves about this. Um, They convince themselves that they're not as high a risk as they actually are because all of those things are pretty standard greenkeeping practices in these days. So, you know, don't beat yourself up over this. No, it is pretty normal practice, isn't it? But but you've got to recognise the risks, though, Henry. And once you've identified that you are high risk, then put some measures in place. There's a few things you could do. You could back off on some of those. You could up the moisture management. Uh, you could lift your cutting heights. You could drop some cuts out of the game and replace them with some rolling. You could increase your top dressing. You could up your nitrogen. But mm. just... Back off. Stop pushing so hard all the time. Yeah, it doesn't have to be sort of like forever, does it? But a slight easing off at this time might just set you up for a really strong back end to the season. And it, and, and these things are important. You know, I was looking back at the US research and the results are really interesting. You know, the um, the plots that were being cut the lowest... 2.8 millimetres, fertilised the lowest, 100 kilograms of nitrogen per hectare per year being regarded as being low. Take note, UK greenkeepers. In yeah. that USA study, 100 kilograms of N was considered low. Yeah, rather than, you know, uh, incompetently high. Yeah. So, yeah, so the, so the lowest cutting height, the lowest fertiliser and the lowest level of top dressing, which I think was like 40 tonnes of hectare per year, I think got 60%, those plots got 60% area affected by anthracnose. Now, if the cutting height was raised, so a different treatment schedule, the, uh, and the top dressing was increased to 80 tonne of year, but the nutrient kept at that low level of 100 kilograms of nitrogen per hectare per year... So this would be probably the one that is most closely aligned or representative of greenkeeping in the UK and Ireland. Those plots got 40% area affected by anthracnose. 
But if the mowing was set at 3.2 millimetres, so, you know, not high, uh, top dressing at 80 tonnes per year, per hectare per year, and the nutrient was set at 200 kilograms of nitrogen per hectare per year, then those plots got, wait for it, less than 10% anthracnose. So, you know, that's sort of backing off and that sort of nutrition there as well made a massive difference, didn't it? And so, look, and there's there's plenty of other things that, that we know that we can do on top as well. So there is real room to help, really, you know. But I think with all non-fungicidal um integrated strategies we must accept that they they're not 100 percent effective they will certainly reduce the speed and severity of attack but in high risk situations you know they're not standalone um, which is why we might need extra support with the with the application of fungicides indeed and i think that's right henry we we also need to look at golfers expectations which aren't changing um labor availability I still hear people are really struggling to get staff. Mm. So, you know, there's going to be compromises and resources aren't changing. People's budgets aren't moving in line with the inflationary costs on products. So effectively, budgets are getting smaller. None Mm. of those things are getting easier to give you more tools. So you have to think about this. And I'm not saying you have to do it, but you have to consider your level of risk. And is it worth you putting a fungicide strategy in place to protect yourself from this challenge? And so we get back to that, Glenn, don't we? Our fully integrated approach, which which only seems reasonable to me when we know the level of risk that we're pretty much all running at. So, so when should we start thinking about our fungicides, Glenn? Well, before the disease develops, Henry, you need to get in front of it. And so best thing to do, I think, is look at your spray records from previous years and take into account the situation on a week-by-week basis. And then try and spray to get in front of the game. The higher the risk for you on your site, the earlier you need to spray. Hopefully by doing everything you can, and you will navigate through this time. And the worst thing that can happen is you wonder if that fungicide was necessary at all. Okay, good advice. But I'm not sure it gets me any closer to knowing when to apply, Glenn. No, it doesn't. And I don't think I can give you a date on this one, Henry. I think this is probably the best example of recording your own site challenges. When do you normally get the problem? Do you see it in July? Do you see it in August? Do you see it in September? Or does it stretch out into October for you? They are all indications of the scale of your challenge. For all those situations, the spore could have activated or germinated in early June, the same time you just didn't see the problem till later in the year. But it just didn't get to a point where it overpowered the turf until later in the year because of the amount of stress being imparted. So the question for me is, honestly ask yourself, how much stress do you impart? Do you impart enough stress to justify a July application, an August application or a September application? Just be honest with yourself. Yeah. Uh, you did some, some trial work on anthracnose at the SCRI last year, didn't you? How did you schedule those applications? Well, in that situation, we wanted to see some disease before we applied, as we were interested in how much kind of curative control we could get, because that's a really good indicator of how effective it would be as a preventative. Um, and we were driving disease in that trial with lots of bad management practices. Um, we saw the first signs of anthracnose in early July, 
but we waited until mid-August to apply. Now in Bingley at Yorkshire, up in Yorkshire, the disease just doesn't rip through, so it was a slow burn. But with that application date, we managed to get things back under control. We committed to free applications on monthly intervals of FR321. Now we wouldn't do that in the real world. We'd ensure that we rotated our chemistries, but this was a trial and we wanted to understand this product. Um, now that program kept us very clean of anfracnose, even though we saw some to start with. Um, now knowing that anfracnose weakened that plant as well, and weaker plants tend to be the first infected by microdochium, it should be no surprise to us at all that when we got to the autumn, we were completely clean of microdochium patch in those untreated plots and didn't need any additional fungicides to get us through to kind of late November without any fuzz. So keeping anfracnose at bay is a big part of our season-long management strategy as well, Henry. Yeah, everything's connected, isn't it? Um, OK, so what fungicides should we be thinking about then, Glenn? OK, so we've got Medallion in the UK, Heritage and Instratorally all labelled for anfracnose. So we've got plenty of technology we can reach to to rotate to support us here. And that FR321 combination pack that we used in that trial was particularly effective. Um, we are replicating that trial this year and we'll continue to share the results with you as they come in. Very good. OK, Let's, I think we should wind this up for now, Glenn. <laughs> you know, I think we'll be carrying on a little bit, um, yeah, with anthracnose. But, you know, it's clear that we're there. We're in the anthracnose zone, aren't we? There is a real danger that it will be knocking on the door in July. And we've already discussed that we're, you know, most of us are probably already at a fairly high level of risk when it comes to, uh, you know, the way in which we're setting up our, our surfaces. But, you know, also there is a lot that we can do that might significantly reduce that risk of attack. And, and we should be thinking of those also during July, shouldn't we? Indeed. So, you know, go away from this, evaluate your own level of risk and decide what you can do to help calm things down. Yeah. And there might just be like slight um, or even short lived adjustments, uh, you, you know, just an application of fertilizer, something like that, in response to those kind of mounting and combining stresses that could be occurring at this time. Yeah, a slight fertilizer boost, the use of high cure or pigments, all of that can help. But you might also need to be more fully integrated and bring in the use of a fungicide to protect the turf in those, you know, really high risk situations. Yeah, and if you do, just make sure you're going early enough. And don't just push on blindly with those dialed-in maintenance routines if conditions do start to intensify and the stresses really start to combine. No, that's always great advice. Look, it's always better to live to fight another day. It is indeed, Glenn. Henry! Yes, Glenn. I want to take you back to maize on the horizon. OK, very good. Why is that then? Well, the purpose of this podcast is to think about the future. It is. And to help people down the line. That's right. And I think it's important we revisit things we've said occasionally just to sense check our advice. That would be very wise, Glenn, wouldn't it? I'm all for that. We don't want to be spouting nonsense now, do we? No, no, we do not. So I want to go back, Henry, and check out your Eurovision predictions. Ah, uh, OK. Uh, let's have a listen then. Oh, and not forgetting, Glenn, 
that May is Eurovision month. Oh, love a bit of Eurovision. Who's your money on, Henry? <laughs> well, the favourites undoubtedly will be Ukraine and Sweden. But don't bet against Italy being up there. And the, ne the Netherlands and Austria are also good outsiders. So basically, it could be anyone. Incredibly helpful, Henry. OK, so Ukraine and Sweden. Yep, first and fourth, Glenn. And, but it didn't take a genius to work that out. Italy? They came sixth in the end. Um, I thought the song was really good, but maybe the performance on the night was slightly off. But the crowd, you know, did go mad for it, in fairness. Netherlands? Yeah, she came in at 11th. And I think that that was maybe even my favourite on the night. Really captivating, that was. And Austria? Now, that wasn't so good. Uh, they didn't even qualify for the final. I think the dance vote went to the Czech Republic, uh, which was very good and a terrific opener for the final, if you remember. Mm, I've got to congratulate you, Henry. True on the horizon stuff. Thank you, Glenn. Did you watch it? I did. I'm not normally a fan, but you inspired me this year. Uh, Mrs Kirby loves it. But uh, mm. this year I committed, I embraced it and I thoroughly enjoyed the whole experience. Yes, yes, it was a, it was a classic year this year uh, with the standard of entry and performance and staging uh, being very high. It, uh, for me, it gets better each year. And although I don't view it patriotically, Glenn, uh, the UK did uh, brilliantly as well this year, which was a completely new experience. Didn't Sam Ryder do us proud? Yeah, he really did. Um, just for clarity, though, Henry, was he actually the founder of the Ryder Cup? I think that might be another Sam Ryder, Glenn. Oh, OK. Um, but I'll tell you something I have noticed, though. Ever since I've moved into this European role, we've done much better in the Eurovision Song Contest. A surefire sign that I'm improving the Anglo-European relations. Yeah, yeah. I'm surprised he didn't thank you in his, in his speech, Glenn. Um, I may, there's, there is certainly scope to use him in a pigment ad, I think. Hmm. All right, Henry. We spoke about Dollar Spot at length last month, didn't we? What have we got to add this month? We did. And so have a listen to last month's episode if you want a recap. But um, let's have a quick summary before we start this month's discussion. So Dollar Spot is a potentially extremely damaging disease uh, that is on the increase, especially in the south of England. Yeah, where temperatures and stresses are the most intense during the summer. You know, those nighttime temperatures particularly, um, where they stay high, we tend to see more pressure. Yes, that's right. And um, we, we discussed that different grass types have uh, differing susceptibilities and that this might become an increasingly important consideration if the trend towards those greater extremes continues, as you think it might, Glenn. Because plant stress and high temperatures are big drivers for the development of this disease. Yeah, that's right. We want a dry leaf and good moisture in the root zone. But what we want to avoid is a wet leaf with a dry 
root zone. And we want adequate nutrition. Yeah, it definitely will hit a lean, weak surface far harder. And we also want to minimise thatch. Yeah, thatchy areas, and they will get much worse outbreaks. Yeah, and we thought that this might be one of the reasons why we tend to see it more in fairway and outfield areas than we do... Uh, on more intensively managed turf such as greens. At present in the UK and Ireland we generally don't experience particularly high levels of disease pressure and so as we discussed last time we probably have all the tools we need to manage this to an acceptable level on those more intensively managed areas of turf. Yeah but those wider areas which don't get the intensity of management can really struggle with dollar spot especially during periods of sustained disease pressure. That's right we might need to intensify some of our management in the those vulnerable areas to reduce that pressure. Okay, so how do you mean? Well, if we dry things down and we lean them out and we let organic matter get out of control, then when we see those right weather conditions, consistently mild and a damp leaf, then we really do fall into that trap and it will be much worse when we do see it. Um, with some water management improvements, change of nutrition and maybe some improved dew removal, you'd probably solve it or at least reduce it down to a tolerable level but they are not easy changes to make unless you've got the resources. Yeah, but in sort of fairway and outfield areas, we don't need complete control, do we? We just need a reduction of severity uh, below an acceptable threshold. Yeah, there's no doubt in my mind that we are walking into conditions more conducive to this disease dollar spot. You know, in the UK particularly, and, you know, and I think it's working from that southwest upwards. But the pressure isn't so high that we can't manage a pretty clean and tolerable surface without fungicides. But for complete control, some areas of the countries may need some additional help. We need to once again consider our grass species, our organic matter content, our moisture management practices, our nutrition levels, probably our dew management practices as well. All of those will help bring this under control. Indeed. And so last month we said that we'd take a look at the Smith Kearns model, which has been developed to help us gauge the level of risk of attack. Back to risk again, Glenn. What can you tell us about it? Okay, so the Smith-Kearns model is a nice model developed in the USA. It indicates pressure levels that are driven by the climate. It doesn't take into account any of your grass species or thatch levels or maintenance practices, but it does help you determine an action point or an action point that's right for you. Uh, the recommendation in the States is to begin fungicide applications at 20% pressure, wait for 28 days, and then apply again if the pressure is above 20%. Now, that recommendation feels a little strong for me, so I think you'll need to tweak it for you, for your site, and for your expectations. Um, and it feels a little strong for me on a number of counts. Look, generally in the UK, we will tolerate a bit more disease than they do in the USA. So I think we could probably start at a slightly higher percentage rate. The fungicides we have in the two countries are different. Although they might have the same brand names, they're generally a little bit different. Our rates are lower than they are in the USA in general, although you've got to watch that one a little bit because USA labels will state a maximum rate, whereas the UK ones will state a rate that you must use the product at and you mustn't move from the UK rates that are recommended. Whereas in the USA, they are given a maximum rate and generally, they'll apply at lower than the label rate. So just be careful when you're comparing USA labels to UK, because although they've got a rate, a lot of people draw the wrong conclusions on that. But those higher rates they might use for dollar spot 
um, might get them 28 days control. I'm not sure we would get those at the rates we have to use things at. But we don't see the same levels of pressure. Our pressure is a bit spikier than theirs, and we dip in and out of this pressure. If you look at the Smith Cairns model, we go up and down, whereas they tend to be much more consistent throughout the summer months. Now, the model is driven by two factors, a five-day average temperature, and it assumes that if we sit between 10 degrees and 35 degrees, then you are in dollar spot range. The closer you are to the middle of that, kind of 22 degrees, the more it ramps it up. But it's saying the moment you are over 10 degrees, you are in pressure range. Ah, OK, um, we, we already said that the southwest is consistently in that zone from July onwards. Uh, yeah, we did. But the point here is that the dollar spot is active, according to this model, between 10 and 35. Now, there's an optimum in the middle. But it's kicking on pretty much all the time. Now, we never get to 35 in the UK, or very, very rarely uh, at the moment. And in July, we've already noticed uh, that the southwest rarely drops below 10. So we're always in range. And during the day, we're almost pretty much moving up to the optimum. And even down in the southeast, they're there for most of the time. They're rarely getting down to 9 degrees. So we're pretty much bang on in that most of the time for the southern half of the country. So the first point, in the south, we're in the right temperature range for 24 hours a day, and we're probably in the optimum close to that 22 for a good chunk of the day, pretty much from the end of June all the way through to the mid, mid-October. Now, the north dips in and out of it much more. Um, worst case scenario, we may see this perfect temperature range for about 20 weeks of the year. Um, so it, it's a real problem, Henry. Yeah, and it's certainly an increasing worry for the south and southwest. Yeah, now there is a second part to that Smith-Kearns model, though, that is useful, um, and that is looking at the five-day average humidity. Now, that's the bigger variable in this model because we don't see that same consistency of humidity that we see in the consistency of temperature. Um, now that moves up and down and the more humid you are the more pressure will go up which is absolutely right because all of these leaf diseases are driven by optimum temperature and high levels of leaf moisture so it's just taking those two factors and trying to build it in so in short Henry the Smith Kearns model is pretty simple when you do move into that danger temperature range and how long is the leaf wet for? Now, don't get me wrong, it is still incredibly useful to help you understand your site and the drivers for your situation. But put simply, the warmer and wetter the leaf, the more stressed the plant, the higher the risk. Now, I was in Germany a couple of weeks back and um, they are a step on from us in their summer temperatures. They get much warmer in the summer months than we do. They ramp up two or three degrees on average all the way through. So I was fully expecting anthrac nose to be their big problem over there, but I was wrong. I was getting loads and loads of feedback that their big summer problem on putting surfaces and approaches particularly was dollar spot, and they rarely saw anthrac nose. And I really struggled to understand why that was until I actually got out on their golf courses and had a good look round, and there were some real obvious differences in their maintenance. First thing is they run on much less staff than we do in the UK. A standard 18 holes is running on kind of four members of staff over there. So in order to cope with that, they do some pretty different things. They are cutting their greens at a higher height of cut. They have increased fertility levels. 
Um, they don't cut as often, so they're backing off that. It's kind of every other day, and you know, so nowhere near as much mowing. And they commit far less time to monitoring soil moisture levels than we do. Their attitude to soil moisture levels is simply to run irrigation heads in between golfers. That's leading to a higher level of soil moisture and a wetter leaf. Okay, so they've moved themselves um, away from sort of plant stress, but um, towards a, a wetter leaf. Yeah, they have. And what they've done is they've switched themselves from anthracnos, which if you put our maintenance programmes in Germany, would be brutal over there. And they've just switched themselves over into dollar spot challenges. But there is a happy medium, Henry, somewhere between Germany and the UK. And that happy medium is the one we keep talking about. Mm. Good moisture levels, good fertility, cutting height for a smooth surface rather than speed. And it can be done, Henry, and people do manage it. The challenge for us in the UK is rolling those strategies out over wider areas. That is a different challenge for every golf course. And something we're just going to have to build in. But I think I think if kind of greenkeepers know what the drivers are and what the pitfalls are as well, we can just make some simple adjustments and, and, and hopefully sort of just you know, reduce the level of damage to a more acceptable level. You know, really interesting, Glenn. Very good. The Beard and DePaolo study that we mentioned in the weather section from 1992, Henry, it often gets misquoted. And this month, it really got me thinking. Oh, well, that is good, Glenn. What are you thinking about? Well, I've been thinking about the difference between canopy temperature and air temperature. We can reach some pretty high temperatures in July. Seems that records are broken every year with some new high temperature recorded somewhere in the UK. But as a country, generally, we're not that extreme. We are, after all, for green and pleasant land, and green grass comes from limited stress. And whilst we talk a lot about heat stress and all those attention-grabbing figures, I do often wonder to myself how close we are to genuine temperature stress in the UK. Um, I worked in the States for a while and we saw some pretty high temperatures up there. We, 35 to 40 degrees, weren't unheard of. And we managed power bent swords through that heat. Okay. Um, but what I think is often overlooked is this relationship between canopy temperature and air temperature and how we manage it. Yeah, interesting. So you've got my attention now, Glenn. Okay, so I really wanted to do some work to understand this better, but I haven't had the opportunity yet, but I've had some digging. Because as far as I can see, no one else has done the work in the UK to understand this relationship. Now, from what I understand, and this is based on Michael Wood's work in Asia and Larry Stowell's great video on the Pace YouTube channel, in the summer, we can see canopy temperatures raising up to about eight degrees higher than the air temperatures. Some people out there are claiming to see increases of up to 15 degrees. Uh, I'm struggling to believe that, and both Micah and Larry both felt that was a bit strong. But, but let's assume, for the sake of this, that the maximum possible is an increase of 10 degrees. And remember that some parts of the country are quite capable of reaching 25 degrees on a regular basis. And seemingly that is getting higher every year and the period number of days we're seeing is getting a little bit longer. Now, Cambridge in 2019 reported 38.7. I think that is the UK record. Now, if the canopy temperature is 8 to 10 degrees higher than that, 
then we really are in danger territory, regularly capable of hitting canopy temperatures of 35, and in worst cases and hottest periods, nearly 49 degrees of canopy temperatures. Now, these sound really attention-grabbing and a bit kind of Daily Mail front page, uh, but that's what they are. They are the extremes. So they can happen in the UK, but they don't happen for long. Okay, so it might be an issue at times and quite a serious one. And so I suppose the question is, how can we manage this canopy temperature to prevent it from causing problems when it does occur? Okay, so the first big influencer and probably the one of the big ones is wind, Henry, a Good breeze will help the plant to transpire and it will pull that temperature down pretty close to the air temperature. So this is a, a long-term management plan we want to be looking at here where we ensure we've got good airflow across our greens. Yeah, you know, airflow, of course, is really important and, you know, and in the autumn as well, isn't it? You know, with the minimisation of surface dampness being a really important part of our autumn microdochium patch disease management strategy. Yes, indeed. And when we're thinking about tree removal programmes, it's worth thinking about the prevailing winds in the summer months as well. Um, whereas most of the winter, you know, when, when we're thinking about that tree removal programme in the winter, I think people's thoughts immediately go to the sun path to allow the maximum amount of light to get in. But now we want to be thinking about airflow. We want to see that flag fluttering, not just hanging limp. And the other thing we need for good canopy temperature reduction is moisture in the root zone. The plant is pretty good at regulating its own temperature as long as there is moisture in the root zone for it to move through its system and transpire. There's been lots of research done on this in the UK, and whilst I find it really difficult to accept, the successful plots, the good kind of um, canopy temperatures close to air temperatures come from the right soil moisture level and not syringing syringing or light watering isn't particularly effective at reducing canopy temperatures. Um, it works for a short period of time, but it quickly reverts back to normal. Uh, yeah, so, so why do you find that so hard to accept, Glenn? Well, I think I find it hard to accept, Henry, because I spent two summers out in the USA in 35 degrees heat dragging hose and feeling like I was some kind of superhero that was saving grass. And actually, I probably just wasted two summers. Um, but, but worse than that, because I wasn't in charge, I just did what I told and I loved it and mm. I embraced it. Worse than that, I carried that mindset through most of my greenkeeping career. I just believed what I'd been told yeah. and I'd made loads of other greenkeepers drag hose and syringe greens in the heat, probably <laughs> unnecessarily. The key yeah. to success with all of this is, you know, to lower those canopy temperatures back to air temperature is simply having the right moisture levels and a breeze. Yeah. Um, and that's why they use fans so much more in the States now. It's pretty commonplace in the States to have fans in areas of low airflow. Now, I don't think we really need to move into that territory in the UK. Maybe we do in a few football stadiums where they don't get any airflow, but rarely on the golf course. So, you know, in summary, I think that by ensuring we've got good moisture control in place, the good use of moisture meters, good irrigation practices, good quality wetting agents, and we're not trying to be a hero on moisture levels, we are good to go. That should pretty much get us through all the heat that we experience in the UK. Yeah, well, that's good, you know, because we've got enough on our plate, haven't we? You know, with, you know, the stresses that 
um, we're mainly concerned with at this time, you know, cutting heights, moisture stress, wear, and UV light. You know, there's enough without adding to it. And don't forget occasionally heat. The stress relief measures we can put in place, good nutrition, good moisture, they should all be enough to get us through most situations. But let's have a long-term game plan of getting good airflow across all greens, not just for winter disease management and winter plant health, but for summer canopy temperatures too. Yeah, good point, Glenn. Um, Yeah, and so, you know, let's not unintentionally pile a whole lot more stress into the situation by being too close to the edge with soil moisture during those really hot periods. Yeah, there's just too much stress in the mix already. Right, Henry, we have been talking about doing a section on application for a while now. Uh, We have indeed. Uh, But why now, Glenn? It doesn't seem uh, like a particularly important month to focus on good application techniques. No, but then no month ever is, is it, Henry? It's one of those subjects that just never really gets the attention it needs. Well, maybe we should drop in a monthly tip then, Glenn. Maybe, Henry. Maybe. Anyway, this month we have some news and a reason to focus. The Amenity Spray Operator of the Year Awards is officially open. How exciting. Look, I know it's no Eurovision, Henry, but it is good. You know, it's an award that gets presented at BTME every year. And if I'm honest, Henry, I'm always a little disappointed in the representation of golf course teams there. Yes, 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 yes. It is always a struggle to get entries. Um, Why do we think that is, Glenn? I'm not totally sure. There is no shortage of talent out there. There are some excellent spray operatives out there. But I'm not so convinced there are many of them out there that have a massive depth of knowledge behind those excellent operating skills. And I suspect they're all pretty self-conscious about that. The the background knowledge just isn't imparted. There is no one out there educating people on these things. What do you mean? What do you mean by that, Glenn? Well, there's no need to commit to continual professional development with spraying, Henry. People cram to get through their assessments and then they instantly forget it all. Um, Not many commit to keeping themselves updated on things like Lee wrap, nozzle charts, PPE regs, PPE storage regs, active ingredient modes of actions, frac codes. By the way, they're all things you should read up on if you want to win the Immunity yeah. Spray Operator of the Year award. <laughs> yeah, good hints there, Glenn. Uh, look, people just don't tend to progress and develop themselves in this area, and I think it's a real shame. So when it comes to entering that award process, um, I suspect people just don't have the confidence to enter for fear of being exposed. Yes, I think you're right. But it's not like it's the Spanish Inquisition, is it, Glenn? And there is really nothing to worry about. You just fill out the entry quiz, and if you do well, then someone will be in touch for a chat. And the prize is usually excellent, isn't it? So, so how do people go about entering, Glenn? Well, Henry, you've got until the end of the month to enter and you can go onto the Syngenta website, uh, syngentaturf.co.uk, fill in your details and there is a nice assessment in there. Um, I've had a look at this year's assessment and it is tricky. It's a bit of an exam, Henry. Oh, yeah. Greenkeepers just love an exam, don't they? And how is it? Uh, I'm not going to lie. It's a tough one. And I can see why a lot of spray operators would start it and maybe not complete it. 
but it will be a real eye-opener to highlight your knowledge gap. So please, please, please don't give up. I'd love to see a Greenkeeper winner this year. Like it doesn't matter if you get any wrong. It just matters that you get involved. There are a few boxes on there we can give a detailed answer, so it's not necessarily the person with the highest score that would win, and it would be based on your expanded answers too. The assessment covers loads of different areas, some of them that you'll be an expert on, others that you'll have never heard of and don't understand. But that's the same for everyone. There'll be someone in landscape who is completely the opposite. They'll understand other bits that you don't, but they won't understand the bits that you do. So it's the same for everyone. This is just a way of filtering out the people who haven't made an effort to educate themselves. And that's what the award's all about. Who has pushed themselves on? But my worry is that it's just not easy for greenkeepers to educate themselves on these points. And that is why I think, Glenn, that we should be doing more to help and support them. Uh, not just for this assessment, but, you know, for that point, really, you know, for the greater good, you know, improve stewardship in the industry, that kind of thing. So whilst it may seem irrelevant... Um, at times it's actually really important yeah it really is so in the meantime i suggest all course managers and spray operators have a go at this assessment make your team do it make them enter you know don't worry how many they get wrong because they mm. will get some things wrong it doesn't matter but it's a good way of assessing you and your team's skill sets sit down give yourself half an hour over some sandwiches afterwards to discuss the answers identify where you as a team are lacking and where your skill where your knowledge gaps are you know, and let us know where your knowledge gaps are. We can try and support you. Um, it would just be great to have a golf course winner. So let's start focusing on this because it is so important as we look onto the horizon. Spray application is going to become more and more critical, not just to help us get the best out of the traditional chemistries, but also the best out of our fertilizers, plant growth regulators, wetting agents, biostimulus, anything that we value enough to point at our turf. That's right. And if we look into the future, Henry, truly on that horizon to kind of biocontrol products and mm. more environmental green products in the future. I can tell you that from what I've seen, we reach a whole new world when it comes to precision application. If we start thinking about nematodes and the understanding we need to have to get them out in an appropriate manner, you suddenly realise what the future may look like. Yeah, and we're already seeing some of these changes already, aren't we? Indeed, and, and we had a fungicide registered last year for football stadiums only, and that came with a caveat that it should only be applied with a LRAP three-star rated nozzle. Now, if you're listening to this thinking, well, I don't know what LRAP means, that means you've probably done your LRAP assessments. Well, you've probably never done them. You, and if you have done them, you haven't done them correctly. You, you won't understand why it's important. But most importantly, I suggest you look it up prior to filling out that spray operator of the year assessment because there's a question in there on it. These systems, Henry, things like LRAP, have all been put in place because there is a growing expectation that we'll be using and committing to excellent stewardship to protect the environment. You know, and that's going to involve continual changes for us. And one I do expect to see in the future is more commitment to drift reducing nozzles. We're doing work at Syngenta on the next set of turf nozzles for the future because we know this stuff is coming down the line. Okay, Glenn, let's pick up on that one to finish off this month. Why is it important to reduce spray drift and what can we do to reduce that drift? Okay, spray drift is bad news. Drift is a product that is lost to the environment. 
You know, it's stuff that doesn't hit the target. So that's wasted product. That's not good news. You're not getting the best out of it. But it also means it's hitting another target. Hitting another target is really bad news. And in agriculture, this is huge. And a real concern for homes and any environment that is downwind of the crops that are being sprayed. Yeah, and when you frame it like that, you can see why it becomes so important. So what, what should we stay focused on when we're thinking about reducing drift? Okay, we've got a few things to go through here, but the first one is keep a good eye on that weather forecast before you start off. We all know that wind is bad news, so have a real good understanding of what wind means for your site. The problem with this one is we are pushing, or course managers are so pushed to get their timings of applications just right, that they tend to push the boundaries uh, further and further when perhaps they should just back off. So just draw your attention back to wind and it's why it's so important to get ahead of the game and choose the right spray day. Now, the second one, and in agriculture, this is fairly simple. They advise you to keep your spray boom as a consistent height to achieve an even spray pattern. Um, now, for us, that's 50 centimetres from ground to nozzle, which is really easy to set up in the yard on a flat piece of concrete. You can measure your boom and you are there but I've never seen a flat golf course. The undulations out there cause the boom to lift and lower, and the wider and the longer that boom, the more it will lift and lower. The higher the boom is, the more drift you will get. The lower the boom is, the less consistency you'll see in your coverage. So spraying undulating ground is really, really tricky. And I suggest people look to their undulating surfaces and have a little play with the configuration of how their sprayer works. You know, maybe use that middle boom a lot more by itself because that floats much better than the two outside booms. And a high boom like you get if you were going over a slope, that outside boom, that's bad news for drift. Now, thirdly, um, you want to look to use the largest nozzle you can as appropriate. Work out your water volume and, you know, the water volume you need for that product. Choose the largest nozzle you can and then ensure the pressure is appropriate. Now, when we're thinking about pressure, and this is the fourth point, get it right. Really simple. Go to the nozzle chart. Have a good look in there. If it hasn't got an optimum recommended in there, Try and keep it between two to three bar. Below two, you'll lose your coverage. Above three, you'll start getting drift. My fifth point, and this one gets missed a bit, forward speed. If you're going too fast, you will get significantly more drift. And I see it on Twitter all the time. It's generally on fairways where fairway sprayers are hacking down, trying to keep in front of golf. That pressure gets ramped up and they're zooming away at 10 kilometers an hour they are losing a significant amount of product in drift. Slow it down, but that is a problem, and I understand why it's a problem, because we need to get around in front of golf. So really think about your forward speed, try and set the sprayer up for that. You know, think, can I increase the nozzle size yeah, so that we can have a slightly lower pressure? Can we slow down our forward speed? And maybe the solution here is just to break it up into two operations over two days. All presents challenges, but they're all things we need to think about. And then number six, Lee Wrap. I'm not going to go into this too deep because there's some questions in the assessment, but look it up, read your label, understand what a Lee Wrap assessment is to you and your site, where you've got water. And if you're in doubt on this one, ask your basis registered distribution. Henry, I've just realised how excited I am. I'm going to get to have a good rant about spraying every month. I am too, Glenn, because it's so important to get it right. 
Another good month, Henry. Enjoyed that one. Yeah, it feels like a month when we're on the edge again, Glenn, with lots of stresses combining to make life difficult. But if we keep in that safe middle ground, then we should be fine. Yeah, and as always, let's try not to get too clever. Not a problem for me, Glenn. Goodbye, all. Yeah, goodbye, everyone. Take care. And remember, let's have a greenkeeping winner in the Spray Operator of the Year. Again.